And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And welcome back, Jonathan. For Hello, the first Gary. time, First time we have a couple of us. We've been having so many guests, it's getting crowded in here. It is a bit. I think, you know, should we so, start charging for drinks or something? We should start charging for drinks, or we should let them take over the podcast. But it's good to be able to chat with you again for a while. <laughs> at, at some convention, we should actually start up a Gershwin room. Um, hmm. But it is good to have a chance to uh, catch up with you. How's your science fictional week or two been? My science fictional week has been on a hold while I finish marking papers at the very end of the semester, but mm. I'm within a day of finishing that, at which point I go back to start reading some things that I have to review for various publications, mostly Locus, and and, and working on the series of lectures I've been working on. So uh, right now I'm working on another review of Neil Stevenson, uh, who is, as we were talking about before the podcast, has a... He seems to be one of those writers that has a separate readership from the general science fiction readership. I mean, yeah. there are the science fiction people who want to read a Neil Stevenson novel, and then there are the Neil Stevenson people who will read a Neil Stevenson novel, even if it's science fiction. Yeah, I think that's true. I think Cryptonomicon broke him out completely. I, think I, mean, so. I mean, I think, obviously, Snow Crash was huge. Obviously, there was a dedicated audience for the Diamond Age, even though I remember seeing that book on remainder tables when I was traveling through the States. But mm. Cryptonomicon, it was read by everybody. I was stumbling over people uh, in, you know, sort of outside the science fiction field, walking around reading it, loving it because it was a great thriller and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And after that, you know, you had dedicated Neil Stevenson readers, irrespective of whether they're part of the field or not. Well, one of the things you found with Cryptonomicon readers, I found with Cryptonomicon readers, is that a lot of them, people I would know at the university, for example, who would be reading it and would have no idea that, that, uh, that those of us in the science fiction field considered ourselves to own it in some way. Yeah, I, I can believe that. This, this is the sort of thing that's happened, uh, which we've mentioned before, that I, I love to play games. I do this with students all the time. To find books that they've read that they didn't think were science fiction books <laughs> when they're reading them. And the yeah. number one book on that list is always going to be Flowers for Algernon. They don't see it as a science fiction at all, huh? Uh, they, they read it in high school. They maybe they read it in a college freshman English class. Uh, they think it's a very sad story. It made them sad. It made them cry at the end. And if it's sad and makes you cry in the end, well, then it can't be science fiction. <laughs> Plainly, the problem is that Dan Keyes didn't put in a spaceship. Uh, that's true. When Dan Keyes wrote ordinary science fiction, that frankly wasn't that interesting. Yeah. Um, but but the point is that the he wrote a book about this called Algernon, Charlie, and I. And it's, there's no doubt that the genesis of Flowers for Algen on the story came out of his involvement uh, with the Hydra Club, with his friendships with people like Phil Klass, who was his mentor, people like uh, Judy, uh, Judy Merrill. Uh, so it, it, it comes, it's not only a science fiction book, but it's a book that comes out of the science fiction world and escapes it. That's a different kind of book from another classic, which a lot of people don't think about as science fiction, but seems to me absolutely um, like it's never going to die was George R. Stewart's Earth Abides um, which came out in 1950 or 51 I think won the first international I think maybe the only international fantasy award uh, for a novel and is now a science fiction classic but it didn't come out of the science fiction field in the way Flowers for Algernon did 
No, it didn't. I mean, and obviously it's mapped back into the history of environmental fiction, and that's what gives it its continuing legs. It could be. It could be. Um, there's a sense in which uh, the ideas that he presented in that book have become almost conventions in science fiction writing. That is, the idea that you may not... that the future is just going to diminish. It's not going to get better. Uh, that if, if, you, if you end the world, he ends the world in that novel. Um, Neil Stevenson ends the world in his novel. Convention of end, There are two conventions of end of the world fiction. One is that we're going to rebuild. It's a clean slate. We'll make a better society than ever. And the other is that people are just going to get dumber and dumber. It's going to be generation after generation of losing information. <laughs> true, true. I mean, I, I guess that's to me, is what makes a particular kind of post-apocalyptic fiction interesting, though, Gary. I mean, I, I find the modern era of post-apocalyptic fiction less interesting than, say, the, the Wild Shore and predecessors, because... I think that they're more focused on the, the misery of the moment of apocalypse rather than the time thereafter. And, you know, there's this tradition of almost pastoral novels. I mean, The Wild Shore, in a way, is almost a pastoral novel. And yet it's a post-apocalyptic story about exploring a different changed landscape, you know. I think that's true, but I think what's happened to that uh, tradition is that's moved over into the mainstream. If you look at novels like Station Eleven or, or, or California, those are basically pastoral novels Mm. in which the apocalyptic setting is simply a place to set a novel. It's one of those other conventions of science fiction that's now just become another literary convention, like time travel. Yeah. Made me stop thinking about how long it is since I've read this book, The Wild Shore. I haven't read that since... My goodness, you're holding up the original Terry Carr Ace Specials paperback. Yeah. I'm very impressed with that. Well, I I didn't know you... I didn't know you were allowed to have those in Australia. <laughs> I, I, I have, the, the, in fact, the entire set, Gary. And not by being a geeky kind of uh, fan who uh, sought them out, but because they actually came... Well, they didn't come out here. There's a specialist SF bookstore that brought them in. And so you could actually keep track and realize what an incredible explosion of publishing those six books were. Uh, the, the ace, you're talking about Stan Robinson or the Ace Special? Uh, the Terry Carr Six Ace Specials that came out in 85, 86. And Green Eyes was one of those, wasn't it? Lucia Shepard's Green Eyes, Stan Robinson's The Wild Shore, Michael Swanwick's In the Drift, uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer, Bruce Sterling's Schismatrics, and... Was it, no, no. Yes, Schismatric. And... Um, Oh, uh, what's it? No, it wasn't Schismatrix. It was Carter Schultz's book and uh, Palimpsests and Howard Wall Drops Them Bones. Wow. That's an impressive stretch of publishing history. It's not even a stretch. That, what's impressive about it, not to sort of belabor an old point we've discussed on previous podcasts, is that it's not, isn't that it's a stretch. It's that it's, it's, it's the opening salvo of a publishing program that came out within 12 months. Hmm. That's what's impressive. It's incredible. Well, it also raises the other issue which I wanted to talk about tonight. Yes. Well, because I just looked this up. I was looking up a bunch. Terry Carr died in 1987. Yes. Uh, and arguably um, one, of, one of those rare people who was an enormously successful book editor and an, and an enormously successful short fiction editor. Uh, now you guys are all specialized. You even have different categories in the Hugo Awards. Yeah. Um, but he was one of a generation of people who, who died 
between 20 and 30 years ago, exactly, I, 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 between 1985 and 1995, it seemed to me that ge- that generation of writers and editors um, died off uh, all at once. Here's a list of people, which I, which is probably not even complete. Well, it's not even intended to be complete. A list of people who died between 1985 and 1995. Clifford Simak, Lester Del Rey, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Theodore Sturgeon, James Tiptree or Alice Sheldon, Frank Herbert. No, Frank Herbert... Never mind. Frank Herbert, 88, I guess. No, 86, that's right. Close enough. Um, Alfred Bester, Terry Carr, Catherine L. Moore, Wilmer Shiraz, Donald Wolheim, Fritz Leiber, Alan E. Norris, Angela Carter and Chad Oliver and Avram Davidson and Keith Lommer and Robert Block, Frank Belknap Long, going back to an earlier generation, Jack Finney, John Brunner, and Roger Zelazny. In other words, between that, that period of 20 and 30 years ago, when I was, was I an adult then? Yeah, well, I was pretending to be one. Mm-hmm. That whole generation of people that we'd grown up with disappeared. And yes. the question I want to ask is, which of those people are still being read today? Is that generation gone in terms of being the formative generation? If you grew up when I did, that list I just read to you are the people you grew up reading. Um, okay. I'm not necessarily the right person to answer this question because I'm probably 20, 20 years too old. That's the first part of my too answer old? to that. Yeah, I'm probably 20 years too old to answer that question properly. Okay. Uh, because you have to ask yourself, what are the Rachel Swirsky generation encountering That's when they come up? So there's exactly so, what I want to get at. So, so there's that, right. Uh, don't forget that a certain portion of the people that you're talking about in that list were already not disrespected or undervalued, but backgrounded by that stage in their careers. That's probably true. Absolutely. I mean, Wilma Shiraz, I think you, you named, who was, respons- who was known for one book and was barely known, wasn't someone that you grew up reading casually. Um, um, that's true. But even if you were to go on to... Okay, uh, Avram Davidson had had a peripatetic career, I think it's fair to say, uh, filled with impressive work, but nonetheless... Irregular and much less so, much much less regular in the last ten years of his life than prior to it. He'd already begun to fade. So I think oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true of most of these writers. Actually, some and, of the last novels of the last, and he were not that impressive. Yeah, and I think it's important to say, not talking about being losing respect. It's losing currency. I guess is what you're talking about, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, I think by okay, within ten years of their deaths fully half that list had become less current. I think by 1995, Ted Sturgeon um, and Avram Davidson and people like that, Fritz Leiber, were all backgrounded to some greater degree. Leiber, up to a point, was headed in that direction, still keeping his profile based on uh, the, the Lankmar stories, but had lost profile before that, you know. When a new library book came out in the last years of his life, it wasn't a major publishing event. No, but then later there were retrospectives, there were collections of stories, and uh, the Langmar stories. One of the things I think that has kept Fritz Leiber alive to this day, uh, not necessarily the number of readers he has, but who reads him and who, who writes homages to him. Yeah. And if you look at the people 
who are currently writing, who are clearly influenced by the Fafford and the Gray Mouser stories and by other Fritz Leiber stories, you've got a very impressive list that includes Neil Gaiman and Garth Nix, Michael Swanwick, and uh, even Michael Chabon, for that matter, mm-hmm. uh, and Terry Pratt, for that matter. All these people, you know, openly paid homage to uh, to Leiber in, in, at some point in their career. And to the extent that they have followers who are so devoted that those followers will find out what they, what they read and what they liked, uh, is that there's there's always going to be a certain number of people who look up Fritz Leiber because, because Neil Gaiman once said something nice about it. <laughs> yeah, but but then that just proves that they've gone from being uh, current canon to being background deep canon, if you like. You know, which um, is, yeah. You know, so there are certain writers that that you need to understand in order to understand contemporary writers. Now, this may be of interest only to very literary people or people interested in literary um, uh, sort of ancestry, but there are writers and books that have been enormously influential for so many writers that um, you, have to, you have to acknowledge the fact that they're, they're, they're part of the groundwater, they're part of what uh, people come from. Fritz Leiber is one of those. One book, since I did part of my doctoral dissertation on it, I keep bringing up. It's astonishing how many writers, how many science fiction and fantasy writers read and enjoyed uh, David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus. Mm. I don't know if anybody reads it anymore, but if you look at everybody from Harold Bloom, the Yale critic, to uh, Philip Jose Farmer, to Silverberg, the number of people who've done versions of that or ideas uh, based on it, are, 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 are impressive. Let me ask you this. Do you pass out... Does a writer or does a book pass out of canon? Because one of the complaints about the existence of gatekeepers and a canon is that they keep stuff out. Now, I actually think it's incredibly easy to, to become canonical in 2015. You know, to actually get really? into the canon, I think, is actually pretty darn easy. Why do you uh, say that? Well, or at least it seems very porous. I mean, okay, do you think any books in the last five years have, have um, become canonical? I think it's way too, or five years is way too short a period to say that. But it's like there's a waiting room for the canon, isn't there? You know, if, if, if it's not the actual sort of the main library of the canon, there's a waiting room. Well, okay, okay the anteroom to the canon. Who's... Who's who's in the waiting room to the canon? That's the canon well, will well, surely Paolo Bacigalupi the wind-up girl is in the anteroom to the canon. It could very well be. Okay, I'm going to say something which is probably. Um, well, we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. I think um, that the water knife is a better novel than the wind-up girl. Mm-hmm. Yes, but the, but, the, but, the, but yes. But, uh, and, but and, you see, what, will carry the, what carries the wind-up girl into canon is historical context. Ah, okay. That's a good point. The wind-up girl, in that sense, seemed to foment some kind of a sea change in the way science fiction was written. Yeah. Um, maybe not as much of a sea change as, as Neuromancer did, um, but it, it, it seemed to represent a, a new way of thinking about things. But here's let me let me let me throw out a more recent example. Um, something similar seemed to be happening when Hanu Rayanimi wrote *The Quantum Thief*, and then he wrote two more novels in the series, and they're enormous amounts of fun, and they're very inventive, and he has this interesting technique of offering you no backstory of just okay, here's a lot of stuff about qubits and gevulots and 
uh, utility frogs, and you don't know what they are. And it just seemed to me at the point, uh, at that point, to, to to completely be something new. And three, the 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 trilogy is a couple of years behind us. He's still a very young writer. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it seems as dramatic now as it did what five years ago. I don't think it's going to become canonical at all. I think or canonical. Really? I think that the two sequels undercut rather than supported that reputation, and so the first book, which doesn't stand completely alone, now seems less important than it did at the time. It depends on it depends on what aspect of the book, the book you're looking at. In terms of the sort of radical invention, uh, he couldn't continue to do that in the second and third books. So in the second and third books, he plays with narrative techniques, you know, Sure. The first book is based on a Maurice LeBlanc thriller. The second one is basically The Thousand and One Nights. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. He couldn't continue to do that. So here's one of the problems. If a book seems too new, if it seems too dramatic, does that mean it's going to eventually shoot itself down? The other writer comes to mind as having struck me as being just radically new and exciting and inventive, and I'd never seen anything like this before, was David Marasek. And David Marasek is, I think, it's not uncommon knowledge, has been having a hard time with his new novel. Look, I think it's a curious thing, the stuff that surrounds a reputation that leads to a book becoming long-term canon these days. I think that there's a additional body of achievement that seems to support and add a bulwark to that book that you think is canonical. So a book like um, the David Marachek book you're talking about, which is an interesting novel and uh, is related to a fascinating uh, small body of short fiction, doesn't seem to make the transition into canon. Uh, the Hanu Ryan Yemi book you're talking about now begins to look more like an early book from an interesting writer rather than the canonical work itself. Now, are you saying that the canonical work... Uh, okay, there's something to be said about a body of work. Uh, and the, the, you sent me off in two directions. One is okay. that. I want to come back to that. The other is canon of novels versus canon of short fiction. Because when okay. you think of David Sack, for all, whatever happened with the novel, the wedding in album, my mind, yeah. the, wedding, the wedding album is, is, is a canonical story. I agree. It's, it's true. But I disagree with the idea that you need to have a body of work to support a canon because two of the books we've already mentioned on this podcast, Flowers for Algernon, and Earth Abides had no body of work surrounding them at all. I would agree, and this is why I guess I, I referenced the concept of a bit of a bulwark, because what can happen is a, is a story or a book can fly so high that it transcends the rest of a career. But sometimes it doesn't, you know. Hmm. Sometimes it does not, and for whatever reason, something doesn't carry that work forward, reputation-wise, to become truly canonical. So you're right. I mean, it's entirely possible Ted Chang could have become canonical on a single work of short fiction, never mind his, his short story collection. And it's true that yeah. David Marachek's The Wedding Album becomes canonical, and I think short fiction is more likely to become canonical based on a single work rather than on that body of achievement. Nonetheless, we can point to novelists who've only ever written one or two books, and one of them is canon, and the rest of his, their work is largely forgotten. I mean, look at someone like, Cant uh, like Walter Miller with Canticle for Leibowitz. Cant Cant yeah. Canticle is truly canonical, still being read 50 years later or whatever it is, and will probably be read in another 100 years' time. 
it's canonical, it's made it. The rest of his work, frankly, not really read anymore, or read mostly out of academic interest. However... Go ahead. However, sometimes the rest of the career holds something up. I mean, uh, a book like Ringworld by Larry Niven Uh is supported by a body of short fiction, it's supported by some other achievements... It's canonical in its own right, but it's also supported and contextualized by other work that make it seem more canonical than it might otherwise have done, I, I think. Maybe. Is Ring World canonical because of just a great concept? Because he simply uh, thought of an engineering project which was so spectacular at the time. This is before we were writing about Dyson Spheres. I will confess something, and it's been years since I read either of them, so I could be completely going out on a limb here. But I read Bob Shaw's Orbitsville yep. sometime after I read Ringworld, and I remember thinking, this is what Ringworld should have been. This is a huge concept. This is way bigger than Ringworld. And to some extent, the prose was better. Bob Shaw is a very good... Bob yes. Shaw, by the way, has a canonical short story. Yes, he does. He does, yeah. Uh, and, and yet, Orbitsville is so practically forgotten. It's not a canonical novel by anybody's standard. No, I, no, I mean, you're right. Uh, Orbitsville is largely forgotten. Most of the body of work by Bob Shaw is largely forgotten, which is sad and unfortunate, whereas someone like Larry Niven is firmly ensconced in canon. Um, and yet, on what appears to be a, dimin- a, a, you know, a career based on diminishing marginal returns. You um, know. But that's true of a lot of careers. It is true. It is very true. Um... And I also wonder whether, you know, like, if a book like Ringworld came out today, would it make the mm-hmm. kind of impact? I mean, this is one of these classic questions, which actually is following around the field at the moment in other areas, around the whole oh. sad puppy kind of thing. And that is, would it, I mean, the question asked these days is, you know, would Robert Heinlein be successful? Or would he be up for the Hugo? Set those questions aside yeah. for a second. With a book like uh, Larry Niven, with Ringworld, which reads a bit like a hard SF science fiction story, but based on my long long ago recollection of reading this book, which I've not read in 30 years, dressed up in epic fantasy kind of regalia, you know. I mean, the book I, I half remember, which I'd need to go back, you know, where, where you're tromping along the ring and all that kind of stuff, uh, is almost like a, a Phil Farmer or a Jack Chalker idea. Uh, well, to some extent, that Phil Farmer and Jack Chalker would come up with those ideas by the handful and throw them out and not not making them the center of a novel. Um, yeah. But I, 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 th- I think you're right. I think the idea that's part of the appeals, part of, and, and canon formation is not the same thing as people continuing to read no. novels for different reasons. No. I was looking at Dune again. I was, I was, uh, and looking, going back and looking at Dune, forget the Duneverse. Yes. Forget all the 13 or 14 novels sure. and the two movies. The, I mean, it's the only science fiction novel for which there is a documentary movie about a failed movie adaptation um, and Dune I think is if you actually look at the amount of it because I went back and looked for the ecological themes there's no doubt he's worked out the ecology of still suits and, and preserving water and the sandworms are great and it looks like the sandworms are being ripped off by the Star Wars universe now but most of that novel is an epic fantasy about royal families fighting with each other and undercutting each other and it's, it's, it's about court politics, it's about rebellions, uh, it's, 
Um, it's set on another planet, but it, it has all the appeal of a great epic fantasy novel. It does. I mean, it's a genuine ap- epic. It's a political epic. It's a science fictional epic. Mm. It and, and you're right. The the science fictional turn is foregrounded right at the very beginning, and then you have an epic adventure. Exactly. Which which is fine. Uh, he plays a little. In, in, in his next two novels, he develops some of the science fiction ideas, pretty much. But and I've, I confess, I've not read all the subsequent the the, the things that. The National Lampoon once parodied by having one of the titles of the sequel, God Help Us, another sequel to Dune. Yeah. Uh, oh, I've read all those, but my sense is that the appeal of those novels were the fa- was the fantasy world appeal. It was not developing the science fiction ideas more completely. I, I, I couldn't comment. I mean, I didn't get to the end of the Frank Herbert written Dune novels, so I couldn't begin to make any guesses about the Herbert Anderson written novels. The, the, yeah, the Brian Herbert, Kevin Anderson, June. I've got no idea. Yeah, I, 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 suspect so there are, I suspect there are more robots and spaceships in those because they're dealing with the Butlerian jihad and all this. And we've wandered a long way from your point, which was uh, oh, yeah. uh, this 30-year-old timer and how stuff passes out of canon, who, who has passed out of canon, as, 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 I guess, writers and careers rather than uh, books. Right. Well, I think it's writers' careers. I mean, if you were to talk to people today about Asimov, for example, I mean, a lot of even young readers would probably mention the Foundation trilogy as canonical, even though it's not a trilogy, and even though they haven't read it, and even though they don't have to read it, and they never intend to. But there are some readers who are younger than I am, uh, and, and I'm taking Karen Lord's name in vain here, and she can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but she was, uh, for her, it was the gods themselves. Yeah. It struck me as kind of a late Asimov, interesting idea of a novel, um, that, but but not not something that I would have thought of as canonical. But she seemed to see it that way. But then, are you conflating personal canon with uh, science fictional canon? Okay, well, what's the difference? I mean, isn't the science fictional canon the collective personal canons of all of us? Well, but, but okay, yes, it is. Yes, absolutely right. In, in, in the best possible way, the canon is the average ca- the average canon of all individual canons, based on those who are willing to express what their 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 views about canonical science fiction is or fantasy or whatever it is right. However, that's not how it actually gets uh, built because it's actually built based on the personal canons of those who speak the loudest and uh, and actually are either willing or able, and that's a key thing, able to be part of the conversation about forming a canon. Now, someone like Karen now is well able to be part of just discussing and forming the canon, um, mm-hmm. and so she can make an argument for the gods themselves, which was always known as a strong, late Asimov novel. Whether well, yeah, it was, it was a good novel. Whether it was canonical or not is another question. You know, um, probably not. I mean, you would have thought canonical Asimov, as you say, was Foundation and the Robot stuff and the Caves of Steel yeah. Naked Sun books, right? Possibly. That, that kind of would have been about it, roughly. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean to d- d- diminish Mr. Asimov in any way, but um, the, the real surprise with a lot of this, and this is perhaps where you're also coming up, is what keeps canon current? Well, okay, and that's an interesting question, because when you go back to my original list, and like I say, Semak and Asimov and Heinlein, the name that ju- people who died between 1985 and 1995, the name that jumps off the list is 
being utterly contemporary is James Tiffrey Jr. It's interesting you picked that one. I mean, yes, that's that is a name that's talked about a lot these days, more than I think that she's read. I wonder about that. I mean, there is the Tiptree Award, which obviously keeps her name alive. There was the phenomenal Julie Phillips biography, which brought her name to the attention of a much broader range of readers. Um, and I think there are, no doubt, canonical stories, the women men don't see being one of them. Yeah. The screw fly solution. I think there probably is a handful of canonical oh, stories. Oh, without a doubt. Not only a handful. I mean, depending on how you want to slice, dice, and Julianne your canon, there are canonical short stories. There are canonical short story collections. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're canonical novels particularly, because that I'm wasn't so sure much her are. real strength. I mean, Brightness Falls from the Air was a good book. You know, mm-hmm. um, and... You know, so were one or two of the others, but whether they were canonical, I don't know. But certainly the short fiction, beyond all shadow of doubt. What surprises me is that that's the name you picked, because it's not the name I expected you to pick. Oh, what did you expect? Surely the name I would have expected you to pick would be Philip K. Dick. Oh, okay, that's a separate issue entirely. Um, (laughs) Because what, he's transcended the canon? (laughs) Philip K. Dick has been canonized by people who are not us. <laughs> well, hang on. Let, let's stop that. Okay, he's been canonized as an individual. No, has he? Let us stop. Has Philip K. Dick been canonized by people who are not us? Or has his work been so absorbed into the background of things that people aren't even aware that it's him? Well, it could be. I mean, it's... Um, my question... But when I say people who are not us, I'm not just talking about Jonathan Lee. I know. Who, who put the three volumes of the Library of America. I'm talking about people in Hollywood who suddenly, based on Blade Runner and nothing else, figured out that this guy was a hot property and continued, commenced to misinterpret almost everything he'd written and, and, and oversimplified. So he's become canonized simply because he's a money name at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to look at a Philip K. Dick novel that belongs in the canon, I'd... I'd go with Man in the High Castle. Yeah, um, sure. I might go with Ubik. Uh, but again, is Philip K. Dick produced a lot of canonical works? I'm, I'm not really even sure that things like... Uh, they're, they're, I'm not even sure that Do Androids uh, Dream of Electric Sheep would belong in the canon. Blade Runner would certainly belong in the canon of movies. Uh, I'm not sure that Flow My Tears, the policeman said, which may be his best structured novel as a novel fits in the canon of science fiction because the science fictional ideas aren't that central yeah, to it. And my, my favorite Philip K. Dick book, By a Mile. Mm. By a Mile. I love that book. But, yes. It's, okay, so... It's a terrific novel. Oh. Have we so answered the question? The question? Yeah, sorry, which question? Are you, are you go ahead. I was just like, have we answered your original question yet? I feel like we're still sort of like edged around it. Well, we were trying to figure out of these people who were in the canon of... of the people who died 20 to 30 years ago who were clearly the can of science fiction of people growing up the preceding 20 or 30 years, at least. Uh, how many of them survive in the canons of people? You mentioned the Rachel Swirsky generation. Uh, there are people who's... They're, they're, okay, let me take two names I think are, are, are different and, um, and yet the same. Semak and Del Rey. Today is, not today, but this year is the centennial of Lester Del Rey's birth. Uh, he was a major force in the field. He is remembered today. I'm going to, I'm going to guess, mostly as the name of a publishing imprint. 
Oh, it's just solely mostly on the basis of solely his wife and, and, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, if you were to, if you, I bet if you were to make up a story about William Del Rey, uh, the uh, Bon Vivant publisher, they'd believe you. Mm-hmm. I think so. People who study science fiction in college classes will they'll probably come across Helen Oloy from the 1930s in a historical anthology. Uh, people who want to look at uh, sort of proleptic science fiction and uh, nuclear power plants might come across nerves. Um, but beyond that, I mean, if you want to look at people who wrote really sort of uh, religiously critical science fiction, you might look at the 11th Commandment. I don't think there's a Lester Del Rey novel that anybody reads anymore. No. I don't know that any of them are in print. Um, I would suggest and, and, you that... And to buy, sorry, yeah? Uh, I was going to go on to Semak, but you want to say something more about that? Well, just, just I think that... Well, first of all, the Herod split there is, I think, we're beginning... It feels like we're talking about the difference between history and ancient history or prehistory. It could very well be. I mean, uh, Del Rey was an important editor. He had a lot of influence in the field. He wrote a sort of cranky but interesting history of science fiction. But... Uh, there's not much in that body of work that anyone other than a science fiction historian is going to have to look at or want to look yeah, at. Yeah. Now, the reason I picked out Simak as a contrast is I thought Simak was a beautiful writer. I don't think Simak was recognized during his lifetime for the kind of uh, sort of characterization, the sort of combination of uh, Midwestern realism uh, with large-scale science fiction ideas. He was doing the same kind of... He was doing the thing in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s uh, that... Um, I'm trying to think Robert Charles Wilson is doing today. Yeah. Some of those novels are beautiful novels. Uh, and I, I, I'm sad to see him drop off the radar. I, look, I am too. And I think that a couple of those books sort of stay in canon to deep canon. I mean, I think C- City and Way Station remain... Classics of the field, great classics of the yep, field. Those are the ones that come to mind. And I heard that someone's about to put out a, a digital only, sadly, fourteen volume collected stories. Oh dear! Which is the second attempt to, to produce such a thing, uh, in to my to, in, to my recollection. Um, yeah, I think he is largely forgotten. I mean, in, interestingly, I mean, you're, uh, he must be close to about the same time, about the centennial of his birth, around there. I would have thought. Yeah. And, I mean, you, know, you mentioned that, in fact, it's interesting. You mentioned that Del Rey's, it's his, the centenary of his birth. Centenary of Tiptree's birth as well. Yes, it is. Uh, which uh, is the other thing that actually started me thinking about these. Well, the fact that Tiptree's current and Del Rey's ancient history. Well, I mean, you could argue, and I wouldn't... Well, first of all, I would suggest that part of the reason there is when their writing careers took place. You know, Del Rey's key writing period, what, was the mid-30s to the mid-50s? And then he's publishing after yeah. that and writing almost not at all. Whereas the short, sharp shock of Tiptree's career is what, the mid-60s to the early 70s. It's much more recent right. in time. And then also what they're writing about was quite different. And the subject matter that attracted Tiptree is much more current feeling. Uh, that could very well be. I mean, Tiptree was dealing with a kind of alienation, gender alienation largely, but not just that. That has become much more central to the field since she was writing than it was when she was writing. Mm. Uh, and and uh, a lot of what Simak was doing uh, was a kind of, I guess it was a kind of 
Midwestern hominess that is has gone out of favor in all kinds of fiction uh, since then, not just in science fiction. He, he was writing pastorals. Um, yeah. And uh, by the way, I looked up Simak. He, he was born in 1904, so he'd be 111. We completely missed his centennial 11 years ago. Oh well. So no, sorry, sorry, Cliff. That's hard. But the other person, the other person. Okay, if you, somebody else who died during that period, and it's and since we're talking about uh, influential women writers, was C.L. Moore, uh, and C.L. Moore died the same year as Alice Sheldon, and yet C.L. Moore is at best remembered as a pulp adventure writer. I think at best remembered as a pulp adventure writer championed by Michael Moorcock. Yes, and Michael Moorcock. Um, certainly showed her influence. And there are stories, it was not too long ago that I reread Shannon Blow, which I think may have been her first story. And it's powerful. Yeah. Um, she she wrote one novel, which unfortunately sort of got sunk under the weight of nuclear war novels called Doomsday Morning in the 50s. Uh, but outside of that, her career, again, you're right, was, was well over by the time she died. But the, the, okay, the career is well over. Uh, she what mostly was known for short fiction, I guess. I think so. A couple of novels. And for a particularly a particular kind of science fiction. I mean, I remember. Okay, I remember her dying, and I you know at the time because I mean you're, you're talking about a particular time in my own life where I was paying particular attention to this kind of stuff uh, uh-huh. because I, I was I was eagerly pursuing news about the science fiction field. I was pouring over Locust when it finally got here to the distant colonies. You know, I remember people bursting into tears when in, in, in a bookstore when Theodore Sturgeon, when the issue came out of Locust uh, that had Sturgeon having died on the cover because no one knew, right? Yeah. You know. You had to find out from magazines back in those days. You did. Back in, back in those days, it was possible to die, probably have been buried, have yourself written up in a monthly magazine, have the monthly magazine shipped to the other side of the world, and then found, people found out. And it yeah. had great impact. Seal Moore, no one was really reacting to. It was like, it was a name from ancient history. It could be, and it was a name that was confused also because so many of the good stories were written partially or entirely in collaboration with with Henry Kuttner. Uh I would argue that one of their stories, Vintage Season, is canonical and deserves to remain there and is going to sure. continue to show up and help forever. I wouldn't argue against it for a second. But cons- consider this for a second. When we think about the, the mainstream literary canon for a second, uh-huh. don't, we, don't we divide it up into classics and modern works? I don't know. It depends on who's in charge of the canon this week. I haven't, I haven't checked out. <laughs> uh, maybe don't, 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 don't you sort of distinguish between the Iliad and, um, you know, stuff written a bit after the Iliad? And I'm not comparing... Well, I'm not comparing yeah. the, the work you're talking uh, about to the Iliad. Well, what I'm saying is that... The, okay. Sorry. With, 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 the, with the Iliad, and for that matter, with Shakespeare and Don Quixote, uh, you can talk about works who survive. You, you can form a canon fairly easily by works that survive and have impact over, impact over century or millennia. Science fiction is not old enough for that. And even in mainstream literature, there's an article in the New Yorker this week about how Anthony Trollope is now the hot new writer among <laughs> literati. Well, and Anthony Trollope, by the way, wrote a, at least one science fiction novel. Um, look, so you never know. True, but maybe in the hothouse atmosphere of the evolutionary field that is science fiction. You know, we, we lay down generations faster that that then you know, elsewhere, I mean, and also we're still finding our feet with genuine 
canon formation. I mean, you would argue in the mainstream literary can- canon, a work that is less than 30 years old isn't be, wouldn't be considered pretty much, probably. Well, I think, I think one of the things that de- determines a canon is, is survivability, and not survivability just because of critics and, and, and literary historians and anthologists, but survivability because people continue to look up these books. So maybe the process that we're not following is how, or, or understanding or discussing properly, is how you make the transformation or the, the passage from personal canon, short, short term within your own lifetime, to genuine literary canon or science fiction canon in this case. You know, so the stuff that I've read during my lifetime, there's particular things that are canonical to me, that's fine. There's stuff which is famous, there's stuff which is well known. And then there's stuff which ages enough and has been around. I mean, a book that's been in print for 50 years in science fiction, I think you can say is canon, right? Yeah, right. I and mean, that's you know, a but lot of Heinlein. Much, much less than 50 years. Can you really say that? Uh, probably. Uh, 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 50 years is, geez, 50 years ago is 1965. Yes, it is. Okay, here's an interesting example. Of, I, think, I think somebody who, as an author, has entered the canon probably on the basis of being in a lot of individual people's canons, but who never fits into the history of the field in any coherent way. And the name came to me because of 1965. We're talking about the very end of the career of Cordwainer Smith. Sure. Cordwainer Smith was, when I was a kid, everybody was just dazzled by Cordwainer Smith, but he was just this oddball, madman. You know, at a certain point in history, he was the... um, you know, he, he, he was the K.J. Parker of his day. Nobody knew who Cordwainer Smith was. And, it, and then over a period of years, you realize everybody remembered these stories. Uh, and it may not be a particular story. You would not find Cordwainer Smith mentioned in histories of science fiction. You wouldn't find him talked about as a canonical writer. By now, I think, on the basis of just so many readers remembering those stories so vividly, he's become a canonical writer. writer. That's an interesting, interesting question, because when you were saying that, I was asking myself, do I think that Cordwainer Smith is canonical? And I want to say yes, but I'm not mm-hmm. convinced. What does uh, it take to convince you? I don't, I don't know. I mean, but if you think about it, if, if there's a single coherent work to be considered, surely it's the, Nor- it's the Nesfa Press uh, collection, The Instrumentality of Mankind. Yes. Which comes out... 20 years, 25 years after he's dead. Um, there's pro- probably a story like Scanners Live in Vain is genuinely canonical. Pro- so probably two or three of the short stories are genuinely canonical. And probably you've got a later in life, you know, a, a later in career retrospective that looks canonical. Probably his body of work is. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about it. I mean, I think that it's one of those things which is, will always, I mean, I don't think he will ever be forgotten. And if that makes it canonical, then that's canonical. Well, when we were talking earlier about who, 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 who is the canon for a generation of people who began reading since all these people died, who began reading the field within the last 20 years, it seems to me just from talking to younger readers, uh, and I do know some, that <laughs> a lot of people discover Cordwainer Smith and are utterly fascinated by him. Well, that no is- matter how much fiction you've read, if you come across not just Scanners Live in Vain, but something like The Ballad of Lost Kamel or Alpha Ralpha Boulevard, no matter how jaded you think, you still come at those things saying, I've never seen anything quite like this. That's because nobody has seen anything quite like that. Um, and if, if that's your criteria, then it will certainly 
um, meet them. You know, it's a fairly extraordinary piece of work in that regard. But also, it's like, okay, did it influence anybody? I think it did, but influence is a kind of tricky term. Influence yeah, it is. Did anybody try to write Cordwain or Smith kinds of stories? Probably not. <clears throat> did people learn to combine wildly divergent cultural traditions from uh, 17th century French novels to Chinese storytelling techniques to modern science fiction to myth to oral tradition? Yes, a lot of people have done that. I think to some extent he's one of those writers who gave science fiction writers permission to write things that were extremely strange and not bother to explain too much of the science. I think he gave permission for a lot of writers to draw on traditions that many science fiction readers might not be familiar with. Yep. Uh, the um, Alpha Alpha Boulevard is a version of some 17th century French novel or novella uh, that, of course, nobody would... Uh, reading science fiction would know that. But since then, you have a lot of writers who are drawing on traditions that, uh, that, that they're now permitted to draw on, and, and they, don't, they don't have to worry about whether or not the science fiction readership is familiar with these traditions. I think that's true. I mean, I, I, I still am attracted to this 50-year cutoff, though. It seems, it feels about right to me. I look at younger works, and I ask myself, can, that I thought were canonical. And I ask myself, are they still young enough to pass out of the canon? You know, hmm. I mean, here's an example. 1980, a very good year for Blue-Blooded Girls. Um, Greg Benford's Timescape. Canonical or non-canonical? It's an interesting question. I think it is. Uh, uh, and I think it is because it was very carefully imagined. And it was canonical in the sense of succeeding as a mainstream academic, academic novel uh, with a science fiction notion in it, which is a very cautious, very sort of uh, circumscribed notion that you could communicate back in time, but you couldn't travel back in time, uh, which still kind of holds up. Uh, so I, I, I think it works. Um, if you move up a few years to 1984, you've got Neuromancer. Does anybody argue against that being canonical? No, but I think that's what I was referring to a while back in the conversation, where you get a sufficiently large spike in a career. That that transcended science fiction it became a cultural touch point that has had vast influence and so it's a rarity I think I think it's a genuine rarity in, in, in becoming okay. canonical so quickly but it was canonical within science fiction I mean it's true that the idea of um, the whole idea of cyberpunk escaped science fiction fairly shortly thereafter uh, and uh, the whole idea of cyberspace became a, a word in the OED and that sort of thing. But ignoring its its impact outside the field, uh, within the field, it's still regarded as having started a movement that in many ways isn't over yet. True. I think that's true. And so, you mean, do I think it's canonical? Yes. Do I think Gibson's a canonical writer? Yes. Do I think anything else he's written is canonical beyond his body of short fiction? I don't know. Hmm. Burning Chrome is a canonical short fiction collection, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. And they're, um, they're, they're... But anything else? Think about it for a second. You know, what What actually has had anything like that impact, no matter how good it is, or whether it was better written than Neuromancer, or whether, you know, I don't think anything else in his career stands stands at that level, well, in terms of becoming it, canonical. 
and, and to some extent, I don't think you can expect that of any. No, no, not uh, not many writers much, write more than one canonical book. There's there's no doubt in my mind that he's become a better writer since Neuromancer in all kinds sure. of ways. Without a he doubt, he can do better. His dialogue is better. He's sharper. Um, if, if, if you go back to that period, another writer who seemed exactly parallel, of course, was Bruce Sterling. Yeah. And it seemed for a while like Islands in the Net uh, was going to be a canonical work. I don't know if anybody reads it anymore. It's a funny thing. I've, re- I've read a couple of books of his that I think are great works of science fiction. And that I think believe... You know, like if, if I was editing a master works of science fiction, would they be in them? Absolutely. Now, is that your definition for canon or not? I don't know. It feels still like a slightly soft measure. But I mean, to me, Islands well, in the think- Net... Sorry, yeah? You're thinking about the Matrix stories? No, uh, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about Islands of the Net. I'm th- feeling, thinking about Crystal Express, and I'm thinking about mm-hmm. um, Holy Fire. Oh, oh, Holy Fire, that's interesting. Which I think are three great works of science fiction, one way or the other. And I think they are great works of science fiction, but great work of science fiction is not necessarily a canonical work of science fiction. That, that's very true. No, no, you're completely right. And it's an in- interesting hair to split, because you know, how do you turn around and talk about you know, uh, very impactful in the moment science fiction. So an example I keep coming back to, not through disaffection, is Charles Strauss's Accelerando, which which in its time, in that little window, that bubble of three-year period or so, seemed like the most influential thing we were ever going to see. And now is not. We've, We've moved beyond it. And Charlie, in fact, doesn't at this point look particularly like a canonical writer. Um, he's written a lot, and it's going to take a long time uh, to sort out what's what. I think yeah. Accelerando was. I think Accelerando was a was a zeitgeist kind of book. It expressed yeah. a kind of idea that had been around. If I if I recall correctly, the term the the, the, the term Accelerando actually was used in Stan Robinson's Blue Mars before uh, before Charlie's book came out. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this was going to happen, the idea of the singularity. Uh, which raises another interesting name, Werner Vinge. Yeah. I mean, certainly in terms of if there are canonical ideas in science fiction, Vinge gets one of them. But is there a single work that embodies that? Uh, what was the first of the uh, the um, oh the uh, the slow thought books? Uh, that was uh, the um, a fire upon the deep, a deepness in the sky, fire, deepness in the sky, fire upon the deep. That's why I get confused because these. That was a fire upon the deep. I feel embarrassed that that I've become confused about that. But um, it's interesting how you ask: Are they canonical? I, I genuinely, I don't know for sure, Gary. Um, I my, my guess is that uh, to some extent, um, I'm I'm trying to look them up right now. It's a fire uh, upon the deep. Is the book you're thinking about? Okay, that's the one. The fire upon the deep, and I think that. That could very well be a canonical book. Uh, but there's, there, I guess what we get into when we get into things like Islands in the Net and um, uh, Holy Fire and, uh, and some of the books that you know, seemed like they were clearly going to be canonical when they came out or uh, Sher- Sherry Tepper wrote some terrific books. And, and well, okay. Is, is Grass canonical? It's a great book. Is it canonical? I think Grass probably is canonical. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Is Down Below Station can- canonical? Down, in my mind, Down Below Station is the canonical cherry work. No, that makes it the standout. That makes it the standout, most famous cherry work. Is well, it? Is it? I don't is it, a, well, it? Well, I know, but I mean, so so set that issue aside. Have you read Down Below Station? 
Yes. Okay. Is it a canonical work of science fiction? It seems to me that it is, but I'm not sure I can tell you why. Oh, okay, I could make an argument, and at, at some point I actually have to mount this campaign that I want to make about why C.J. Cherry should be a CIFWA grandmaster and how they all should be kicked in the pants for not having done that already. Uh-huh. Um, and I know we recorded and lost that podcast with Joe Walton, but someday we will re-record it and, and do it right. Uh, I, I, look, I think it's canonical because it's one of the great space station stories. I think it's canonical because it's one of the great military science fiction stories. I think it's canonical because it's one of the great military science fiction stories to expand out into politics and economics and other kinds of sciences other than just hard sciences. That's true. Um, I think it's canonical in the way that it presents female characters in science fiction. Uh, There are very, very few as dark and gritty female characters as Sidney Mallory in the in in, in you know, the, the the halls of science fiction, I think it's in many ways quite a remarkable book, and I think Cytine, its follow-on, is equally canonical in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't many writers who make hard science fiction. Bujold is one of them uh, of uh, reproductive technology, which is something that is a large part of Cherry's world, and particularly sure. of Cytine. I guess the question is again: uh, this is, is well, let's take those two novels in particular, are *Down Below Station* and *Citine*, still being read by people who, let's say, began reading science fiction within the last twenty years? I think they are. In fact, I think uh, if if this is your test, then it's a harsh and cold test, but it's not a bad one. Are they being read by people who don't realize they're old books? And I think they are. I think that's certainly true of Bujold. Uh, I think Bujold develops passionate readers. And once you get into the Bujold universe, you want to read more Miles Rokosigan novels until you've read them all. And I think there are writers who do that very successfully with series. I've never read all of them, and I can't comment on them. And the, I can only comment on a couple of Cherry novels, which happen to be the couple we're talking about, which struck me as being enormously new. And I suppose if people get into Cherry now they will have to find their way back to Down Below Station and Citine. Well, actually, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the core part of Cherry's career now has been distorted by her modern, her most recent body of work, which is the Foreigner series of books. And I yeah. say distorted just by sheer volume. I mean, she's put out 16 or 18 Foreigner novels now, mm-hmm. uh, all of which are exploring things to do with politics and gender and language and all kinds of interesting things. But, now that's what stands out rather than the Union Alliance stuff, which stood out prior to the arrival of Foreigner. That could be, yeah. How? So, so contemporary attention has been distracted. And in fact, probably the, fa- the, the failure of her modern career was when she wrote Regenesis, which was the third of the uh, Foreigner, so of the down below Citine oh. set, and was an enormously disappointing book for all sorts of reasons. Awful, awful book unfortunately. Um, and that hasn't helped. But what's interesting about Down Below, for, to my reading in Citine and the way they're read, is they don't read like old books. One of the things that's interesting to me about, you mentioned the rediscovery of mankind by Cordwainer Smith, doesn't read like an old book, does it? No, not at all. Does June, I mean, I haven't read in a while, but I don't think particularly June reads like a 50-year-old book. Dune was surprising. I, I, I was... Uh a little bit uh, taken aback at how clean the prose was in it, partly because the later books had got a little bit clotted and wordy and digressive and so forth. Yeah. So Dune itself, and I would go so far as to say Dune Messiah, 
uh, which is actually a fairly short novel, are pretty efficiently structured books, and they read very well. By the time you get to God Emperor of Dune, it starts getting wobbly. Mm. Yeah, we won't go there. Um, Weirdly, I suspect, and I haven't gone back in a while, but when I did, I was struck by it. Foundation reads much more cleanly than you would think. Um, It does. I mean, it's... uh, it's a sort of thing. I still believe Foundation is kind of the classic test case of a book for science fiction readers. Because if you take somebody who's not a science fiction reader and show them the novel, they are going to point out to you that nothing is happening here. People are talking about history. That's the whole thing. Um, and uh, it's kind of like when we did the podcast from from World Fantasy, and Bob Silverberg discovered that our audience had not read Olaf Staple. <laughs> Bob, if you're listening, I hope you're over that now because that really upset him at the time. <laughs> and interestingly, no more it's people will have read Olaf Stapledon now than had by the time back when we were doing the podcast. I went back and reread a good chunk of uh, Last and First Men and a smaller chunk of Star Maker. And if you're a science fiction person, if you have this absolute sense of wonder over ideas simply presented as ideas, they're astonishing books. If you're expecting things like a character or a conversation or some kind of human contact, it's not there. You know what all this tells me? What? It tells me that the canon is fungible. I hope it is. I really hope it is. I mean, I don't want anybody (laughs) giving me a list of saying, this is the classic set of works of science fiction. And they ended in 1980 and... Okay, let's say they ended in 1984 because everybody will agree on Neuromancer. And don't bother to think about admitting anything after that. I think things drop out and things drop in. And I think probably the mechanism of canon formation is changing as we speak. And you might say, well, Jonathan, why do you say that? Yes, why do you say that? I say that because once upon a time, any book which was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula Award would probably have gone straight into your back pocket as being likely to be a canonical work. And if it won them both, you'd have said definitely. Yeah. I'm not sure we believe that's true anymore. I don't know that it's true anymore, and I don't know that it's been true for some time. And um, my my, my example is, let's not even talk about um, Dan Leckie, who has a reasonable chance of being the first back-to-back winner since Orson Scott Card. And I don't doubt, whether we like it or not, that for the general readership, uh, Ender's Game is canonical. I'm not sure Speaker for the Dead is, and Speaker for no. the Dead won the Hugo the next year. No, I don't think Speaker for the Dead is at all. I think Ender's Game is irrevocably canonical, no matter what you think of it in retrospect. Um, I don't know whether Ancillary Sword is a canonical book. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I think the point... It, it's, it's almost irrelevant, because the point is. you're making is that if it if it wins a Hugo Award this year, that's not going to make it more or less canonical than it would have been otherwise. Well, okay, but I mean, Ancillary Justice won last year, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I the, the names switch around in my head. Ancillary Justice wins last year, and it won the Nebula as well, right? Right. It's canonical. Um, what's up for the Nebula this year besides that? Uh oh, I'd have to go look, uh, and I will. But but ask yourself is, is answer this question. Is the first Anne Leckie book canonical? I don't think so. I think the first Anne Leckie book is a very good book. Uh, I think it does very interesting things. I've not read the second one. Uh, 
but there's a limited number of very interesting things. And once you get past the interesting things she does with, with gender and power relationships and some very well-written parts uh, and some very imaginative parts, uh, does it change the nature? Does it change the field in some way? Does it, does it sort of ultimately give expression to a tradition in the field which has been around? But, but, but Gary, I mean, okay, it is a good novel, to pick up the, the, the cudgel that some of my, my feminist friends might, might pick up, how can you say that? Because when you consider this, right, uh, Ender's Game is canonical, and up until 10 years ago, people would have said Speaker for the Dead was canonical. We're talking books mm-hmm. that win the Hugo and Nebula, sequels up for the Hugo and Nebula, like won the Hugo and Nebula, right? Uh, instantly canon. Instantly canon, canonical. And yet, here you have Ancillary Justice, it wins the Hugo, it wins the Nebula. Ancillary Sword, up for the Hugo, up for the Nebula. Surely they're canonical. Or has our view of those awards changed so much that they're no longer the metric we use? I don't think they're the metric we use. I don't think that... I, I think this goes back well beyond this year. I think going back to the, the, the Speaker for the Dead, I don't think anybody regards that as canonical, even though it won a Hugo Award. Sure. I'm, I'm looking up... I'm looking up the last few years' winners as we speak. How many of these things do we think are canonical? Um, and, or will be canonical? We can get in a lot of trouble for this. So, okay, ancillary justice. Red Shirts won in the year before that. I don't think that's going to be a canonical novel. Frankly, I'm not sure that... Hmm? I'm, I'm going to speak out in, def- in, in defense of the, of, of the Scalzi there and say the only reason that's not going to be canonical is because we tend not to make comedy canonical. I'm not sure that's necessary. Well, I, I completely agree with that, and I, I the, for that reason alone, I like Red Shirts winning the award. I yeah. liked, I mean, as a novel, Old Man's War is a better novel than Red Shirts. It is. Um, but uh, it's is, is there any canonical comic science fiction at all? Um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Gary. Uh, there, there isn't very much. I think if you were to look at the science fiction and fantasy canon, and I expand it deliberately and make the statement, in the last mm-hmm. ten years there have been two canonical books to win the uh, to win the um, the Hugo Award. And what would they be? Wind Up Girl and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Okay, that's uh, yeah, that's canonical fantasy, and that's yeah, uh, but still canonical. Uh, so you don't think that something like the Graveyard Book will become canonical? It may, but if it does, it's going to be con- canonical in children's fiction. Hmm. I'm looking at... I mean, just for people who don't know what we're talking about, it looks like the wind-up girl of the city in the city. Did they share the award that year? They, they tied, yes, here in Australia. Yeah. And the year after that, you have Connie Willis. Blackout All Clear may not be a canonical... Work, but I don't think anybody would doubt that Connie Willis is a canonical writer. Canonical writer, but Blackout All Clear is forgotten. Book is a canon- huh? Blackout All Clear is kind of forgotten. Well, except for Connie Willis readers. Uh, mm, yeah. People going into Connie Willis these days will still probably start with Doomsday Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Walton's Mothers, which I loved, uh, probably not. Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell, I'm going back further. I, there's some very good novels here, but oh, yeah. which are the ones that uh, American Gods, meh, Harry, Co- Harry Potter, 
and, and, and also, fine. Gary, let, let us be honest, because there's all sorts of people as we trail towards the end of this podcast, and we don't want to bore people, who will disagree yeah. vehemently because the, you know, in their own. I mean, like, I'm now looking at the Nebula list, right? And uh-huh. is 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson a canonical work of science fiction? Too early to say. But I'm do, going. Do, do you feel like it would be? I think it could be. I think it's got a very good chance of being. But then what you're telling me is Stan is going to be a multiple canonical work writer. Because surely Red Mars is canonical. Okay, uh, I'm back at the 1997 for the Hugo Awards. Blue Mars won that year. Is Blue Mars a canonical work? Of course not. Is the Mars Trilogy a canonical work? Yes. What did it lose out to for the Nebula, Gary? I have no idea. Speaker for the Dead. Go Stan. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you want to go through the nebulas, you know, going back over just quickly, because we've got something else we want to get onto, and we've already spoken for an hour, over an hour. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think twenty three twelve is likely to be canonical. I think Joe Walton's, among others, won't be. Uh, although I lo- love it very much, I don't think Blackout All Clear will be. Though I think Doomsday Book is, and I think Connie is, and I think her short fiction is. I think Wind Up Girl will be. I think Powers by Le Guin will end up being a footnote. I think Yiddish Policeman's Union is an outside thing in the science fiction field to be mm. considered. Uh, I look at you know I look back over I mean Camouflage by Joe Haldeman, Paladin of Lost Souls by Bujold, Speed of Dark by Moon, all good books, not canonical. You start beginning to go back Forever Peace by Haldeman, Parable of the Talents, uh, I mean Slow River by Nicola Griffith, which is in my personal canon, right? Personal canon, but not really yeah. the science fiction canon. In fact, I look at Nebula and I think it's a shit house measure, pardon the language, of canonical science fiction in terms of winners. Because I look back through these very good books, which I don't think are canonical, and it's only when I hit maybe Red Mars and Doomsday Book and Tahanu and, well, actually, Falling Free by Bujold, even though The problem with Falling Free is it's not even the right Bujold book to be winning the Nebula. No, Ender's no. Game, Neuromancer, Startide Rising. And see, now we're getting back in time. You get back to this, this period you are talking about 30 years ago. Here's your 30 years ago. Are these books canonical? I'm going to read back in time from this point. Is Ender's Game canonical? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm not, not... I wouldn't put it there, but it's there by... Neuromancer, oh. canonical? Yes. Startide Rising, canonical? Not. No. Sorry, no. No Enemy But Time by Michael Bishop. Canonical? No, I have to say, I don't think it is either. No. As much okay, as I admire I like Michael Bishop's career and love his work. Uh, Claw of the Conciliator by Gene Wolfe. Canonical as part of The Book of the New Sun? Well, The Book of the New Sun is canonical. Yep. Timescape by Benford. We talked about it. Probably canonical. Probably. Fountains of Paradise by Clark. Probably canonical. No, I don't think so. No? Okay. Uh, Dream Snake by Vonda McIntyre, I'd say probably not canonical, even though Mistress Works, Masterworks worthy. Gateway by Paul. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that could be. That could, that could turn out to be one, because it's such a concept that has been played with by everybody and has now even made its way into the movies with Interstellar. And there's going to be a TV series of it. It's going to be a TV series of it, yeah. Um, Man Plus by Paul. Man Plus, no. Forever War? Yes. Dispossessed? Yes. Rendezvous with Rama? Yes. That's interesting, interesting, isn't it? Because conceptually, it's nothing to compare with Childhood's End, for example. But he'd learned how to write a little bit better by then. Now, in defense of, of the Hugos now... Because actually, I think what we're going to find is that the truth is that one of the things that happens with canon is that age is actually the measure, right? So let's go back. Uh, Hyperion, canonical? 
Canonical? 1990, Hyperion, Canonical. Oh, so it's, it's, again, it seemed like a lot of fun at the time, but... Uh, no! Okay. Citine. No, Citine, Canonical? I don't know if Citine would... I don't know if I'd put both Citine and Down Below Station in, but I'd certainly put one of them in. The Uplift War by Bryn. Not Canonical in my measure, though. I enjoyed it a lot. No. Speaker for the Dead, we've agreed, probably isn't Canonical. And if anything, it's kind of like rounded off with Ender's Game, which is Canonical. Neuromancer, we agreed. Star Tide Rising, you don't think so? I think might be. Um, Foundation's Edge. No. No. Down Below Station, though? Yes, Down Below Station, I would put there. Snow Queen? By Joan de Vinge? Oh, I'd have to think about that. Joan Vinge was playing some really good stuff, and I... I, I might put that in the can. Okay, I think I would too. And we've agreed, well, you've said Fountains of, Fountains of Paradise and Sne- Dreamsnake aren't in there. Gateway is in there. Were Late the Sweet Birds Sang? Yes, absolutely. I think that's still the best cloning novel. I don't care what Ishiguro says. Yeah. <laughs> the Forever War, The Dispossessed, Rendezvous with Rama, The Gods Themselves, To Your Scattered Bodies Go, Ring World, The Left Hand of Darkness, Stand on Zanzibar. Pretty much canonical, Gary. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, we get, we get so many years, and you've got a pretty good list. But and then, I'm okay, at some of the okay. Now, is is this that the the modern awards are a rotten um, measure, maybe, or is it that just not enough time has passed, Gar? It could very well be. I don't know. I mean, it, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I was looking at the Hugo for nineteen sixty nine went to stand on Zanzibar. Absolutely deserved it, but mm-hmm. so did. Samuel Delaney's Nova, and so did Ari Lafferty's Past Master. See, this is the problem with annual awards. You get awards for <laughs> you've got three or four masterworks, three or four canonical works coming up in the same year. Well, <clears throat> okay, but you say that, right? And I mean, that always happens. I mean, you turn around and see where Rainbow's End by Verna Vinge wins the, uh, the Hugo in 2007. I don't mm-hmm. think it's canonical work, but you know. But what's it up against? Blindsight by Peter Watts, which is a minor classic. Right. Eiffelheim by Michael Flynn, which is probably not going to be a classic. Glasshouse by Charles Ross, which is a really interesting book. And His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novik. You're not exactly bleeding for lost classics in that number. But, you know, Um, in other years you are, you know, so it swings in roundabouts, Gary. It does. And there are things that are hard to sort of pull out of the... uh, um, of, uh, uh, out of not the series that they're in, but out of a kind of constellation of books. I'm thinking of one of the ones that lost uh, the Hugo Award was, was Ian McDonald's The Derby Show. So I don't think Ian McDonald has won a Hugo Award. Shameful. And, shameful, shameful, shameful. And yet he is certainly one of the major writers. And, that's, and you can't call it a series of novels. If you go back to, uh, to, to the Indian novel and the Brazilian novel and the African novels and the Turkish novel, he's clearly doing a very interesting kind of canonical experiment, which I think opened up science fiction in all kinds of ways. I think you're right. Um, and no one of those individual novels got the kind of recognition. But then you touch on something else. I mean, I, I answered a survey that Jeff Ryman was promoting, at least, on um, Facebook about the Hugo Awards, talking about your perceptions uh-huh. of them and everything else. Like, do you think the Hugo Awards are a North American novel, uh, award? Yes. Do you think they're, they're the... Uh, the property of the World Science Fiction Society, yes. Do you think they're just really mm. the um, membership of that convention speaking? Yes, I do. And so that's what you get. I mean, we've, t- we've touched on it before. We'll touch on it again in the future, I'm sure. How is it humanly possible that Baxter and McDonald and Reynolds and Macaulay and, you know, are not 
Gwyneth Jones, are not majorly recognized in the history of the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, but they're not. And it's because they are parochial awards. They're good parochial awards, but they're not international awards at all. That's a nonsensical statement. They're just good North American awards. Well, and uh, I'm not going to defend North America at all, except when we had a no. very, very large, well-attended Worldcon in London last year. Oh, sure. American one. As I recall, only one British writer was even on the shortest. I know. I was very, very, very disappointed. You know, And we could go around about the whys of it, uh, I'm really just looking at it as the what's of it, if you like. And I look at it and I think, you know, it, 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 it's a shame, but it, it, it's the nature of that beast, and you have to take that into account. And so this version of the canon, the, the canon we just read through was largely a North American canon. Well, and you go back before a certain date, it's going to be an all-North American canon. And this is and where, the, it, where the 50-year benchmark comes in, Gary. I think it becomes... Uh, uh, international works begin to you know, bubble up, if you like, over that period of time. Well, the fact that we've got the, the three-body problem on this year's Hugo Ballot is, is a very encourage, encouraging You problem. know what shocked me, Gary? I finally gave in and bought my own copy of the three-body problem, which arrived on Friday of this week, just gone. Uh-huh. And it's the fourth printing. Really? That shocked me. I mean, I'm that delighted, delighted, but it's the fourth printing. I look forward to meeting him during the Nebula. You will. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that it's probably not going to be possible to have him on the podcast, but I think it's fascinating. We were going to talk about one other thing because we've resolved nothing about the, the, the canon, really, other than hopefully it's fungible. As we would, but maybe we, maybe we make people angry, which is something. Well, there's that. And also, I mean, my view that hopefully the process of canon formation is actually in flux at the moment. And the ways and the variety of kinds of things that can get in, into the canon has expanded. That's what I really hope. Because I, you know, the last thing I want a, that, that process to be is closed to the broadest variety of work possible. Yeah. Does I think that. that's a problem. Now, the other thing you want to talk about, and we're not going to be able to talk about it in any great length, but I think we will talk about it for a minute. And that was, first of all, that Hugo Awards voting is now officially open. You can get it from sasquatch.org. Sorry, sasquatch.org. And you can go there and you can vote for the Hugos if that is your predilection. If you're one of the thousands and thousands of people who've purchased supporting memberships or attending memberships, you should get thee to the website and vote for the stuff that you loved, respected, or want to smite with a stick. And the other thing which is worth mentioning is that the site selection ballot for the Hugo for the 2018? 2017? 2017. 2017 is, is, is now open with, with bids from one North American site, I believe. And now, before uh, you t- say where the places are, I want to touch on something, because uh-huh. it's, it's relevant. Uh-huh. And I'm sure it's different for many people out there in the science fiction community. When you vo- First of all, have you voted for site selection in the past, Gary? I have. Yes, I have. Now, wh- when you vote for sites, Gary, do you vote beca- on where they think that they're going to run the most interesting convention? Uh, where they're going to have the most resources available to run a good convention, or where you most want to go on holiday? Oh, the latter, for sure. <laughs> I, know nothing, I know nothing about how they run conventions, or about the organization, or about resources. I went London, obviously, I knew it was a good bid. I knew the people involved in it. Um, so I knew that was going to be a well-run convention, and it was an astonishingly well-run convention. Yeah. Uh, but there's another factor, which goes back to what you're talking about, North America dominating the Hugo Awards. 
And that is that in any given three-year period, in, in any given year, the people who can nominate for the Hugo Awards or people who attended the prior convention, the current convention, or the upcoming convention. And since, on the average, there are, there's never a three-year period without two of those years being North American conventions, the majority of voters in any given year are going to be North American voters. It's true. Which means that, in terms of my personal preference for 2017... Is going to be Helsinki. Yeah, well, when the, the, the locations are Washington D.C., Helsinki, Montreal, and Nippon, uh, somewhere in Japan. Now, mm. I could click on it in the link, but I'm not going to. Too bad. Uh, when I look at those, we were in Washington last year mm-hmm. in November and had a lovely time. And actually, I want to go back to Washington because you I didn't talk- get. Hmm? You're talking about the World Fantasy Award. Yeah, we were there for World Fantasy in, in November. Uh, Washington, right. I, don't, I don't think Worldcon's been there for many years, but yeah. on one hand, I'd love to go back to Washington because there's a whiskey bar I didn't get to and it's an excuse to go. Yeah. There you go. Montreal, Worldcon was in Montreal in 2008, I think it was, or yeah, 2009, sure. something like that. And it was a very good Worldcon, I have to say, from my recollections of it. But I don't know that I need to go back there. Montreal's a lovely city. Japan would be interesting. I guess Helsinki would be my first choice, Yes. Well, partly because, I, again, I've, I've, I know of people. Uh, I know they put together good conventions. There's a very dynamic science fiction world going on in, in Finland and Norway and Sweden uh, these days. Uh, and I, I want to meet those people. I'll meet some of, the, some of them this summer at yeah. Archipelicana. Yeah. Uh, but, but by and large, I think it's important, for the reason you mentioned earlier, to expand the voting yeah. base of Hugo's. To, uh, to to Europe, Australia, Asia, and South America. Okay. Is, is there ever been a South American? There's never been a South. I American don't think so. No, place. no, I don't think there has been. Going to Rio de Janeiro or something would be fascinating, wouldn't it? That'd be great. Because there's this legend science fiction conference in 1967 that I've heard about from everybody I know, with Aldous and Ellison and Haldeman and everybody. Well, then I think Gary, <laughs> whilst I actually have personal preferences, and whilst I would rank them probably differently one to four than you would be for the Worldcon bids for 2017. I think the Cood Street podcast needs to officially declare its support for a Worldcon bid in 2017. And based on this, I suspect that we're going to uh, declare that we are supporting Helsinki in 2017. I'll agree with that. So so the Cood Street podcast officially supports that. Okay. And and we love the other cities, absolutely. And, no, we don't. They're, we, they're dead to us. We don't care. They're dead to us. Okay. We're, we officially support Helsinki, and we, we won't even go to the other places. Pa, pa, pa. <laughs> well, okay, we'll go to Washington because they got a really good whiskey bar. And okay, Montreal's nice. And it really depends where in Jap- Japan it is, doesn't it? Because, I mean, Nippon isn't a place, right? It's a country. Well, no. no. So where? Uh, is it like Tokyo? Um, um, I have... Yeah. Okay, it's in... Shiz- at the Shizuoka... The Shizuoka Convention and Arts Center, Grandship, Japan. I don't know where that is, Gary. I'm ignorant. Um, I'm going to guess it's like Tokyo or somewhere. The Shizuoka City is where they're bidding for. So I'm sure that'd be a wonderful place to go. But we officially have declared now the Kood Street Podcast is campaigning for Helsinki 2017. If you, if, if you are a listener to the podcast, and if you don't go and vote for them right now, you're dead to us. Is that right? 
Um, absolutely. And, and while, you, while you're at it, vote for the Hugos, which aren't nearly as important as the... <laughs> Hugo, what, I don't know. Well, my problem is, I, I'll come back to that in a second, even though we're way over length. Uh, we're almost as long as some of the other Australian podcasts now. Um, boom, boom. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, hey, look, they get long, those guys. They're at past two hours. That's insane. Um, okay. I also want us to declare for the 2019 work on Bid Gary because I've got a prejudice and I don't want to entertain any other options. I should know what this is, but go ahead. Hit me with it. Dublin. Oh, absolutely. No problem there. Yep, see? So I, I realize that Worldcon doesn't normally go overseas twice in British succession. I think I did something to support Dublin when I was in London. Yeah, well, there you good. I stopped by their table and filled out a card or something. Well, now, I mean, now, okay, so we've now officially come out for Nippon in 2017 and Dublin in 2019. And if you're listening to us, organizers of those conventions, we're happy to do whatever we can that involves very little effort to support those bids. Yes? Absolutely, as long as it involves no effort at all. Or almost no. No, I'm going to go to almost no effort. Okay, all right. Okay. And then finally, yes, the Hugo Awards. I am having now gone through the novel nominees. I'm actually a little bit split. I don't know what I'm going to put first, and that really surprises me um, because I really have different reasons for admiring the three-body problem and the Goblin Emperor. I, I rank the uh, Anne Leckie book as being very good but of less interest than either of those books. So that's me. I'm sorted. I just have to make that decision and get online and vote. So I'll do that over at sasquatch.org. And we've got that until, until the end of oh, the Oh, ages, yeah. I mean, you're supposed to go get your voter packet and read that. I mean, if you want to actually understand what you're voting for, you should probably go and look at the vote, you know, the, the, the voter packet, I guess. Or you can just vote. That doesn't really matter. No, no. I mean, the, next, the next thing we'll be watching for, because voting is closed, will be the uh, Locus Awards in June. Yeah, yes, well, the, I would think that the ballot should, or the shortlist should be out, because, of course, it's not a ballot. One of those odd things about, yeah. well, interesting things about the Locus Awards is everybody votes, and then they put out the top five as a shortlist, but the winner is already known. Right. Not by the people who have won, though, I should stress. So we can't sort of say congratulations to someone because they don't know yet. In fact, nobody even knows what's on the ballot yet. So that'll be oh, out soon. Sure. I would think that'll be out probably in the next few weeks, has been my guess. And that will be interesting. We'll comment upon it. And we'll have Liza Tromby from Locus with us in about two or three weeks to talk about forthcoming books. We'll have the uh, upcoming episode with Paolo Bacigalupi quite soon. But in the meantime, we have run on at extreme length, Gary. We have waffled. Without guests. I mean, guests keep us reined in, don't they? Well, normally, no, no, it's not guests. Sorry, I'm pointing off screen to the other screen that doesn't show you the stopwatch that I have up, that, that I have running every single episode we ever do. Oh, I have my I have my little timer, my little sort of graph like thing with my backup recording, so I know how long we've been going on. Uh, yeah, I, I have an actual there. I have an actual stopwatch running, so that I so that I'm oh, at, okay. uh, so that I play by the rules. So, well, with that, Gary, we're an hour and twenty plus in to this the two hundred and thirty second or thirty third episode of the Cooch Street Podcast. As always, it's been actually it's been genuinely d- 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 digressive and rambling, but it's been a pleasure as always. We're back to our usual form, so we will talk next week. I look forward to it with with, with great anticipation. Until then, I'll talk to you next time. We remain now as ever, the Cooch Street Podcast.